Welcome to Design Your Life, the podcast where we explore the central role design plays in our everyday lives and how, if harnessed correctly, has the power to positively transform the way that we live, design better businesses and sustainable solutions for the planet. We speak to creative entrepreneurs around the world about how they inspire their ideas to life and how they make it all work and the role design plays in their lives. I'm your host, founder of Frost Collective and author of Design Your Life, Vince Frost. At Frost Collective, our specialist place and environments teams work globally with architects, developers, cities, corporations, and governments, delivering successful human-centered solutions across place visioning, property branding, and strategic wayfinding and signage. To find out more, head to frostcollective.com.au. Welcome to the latest episode of Design Your Life Architect Series, from Lego to skyscrapers. In today's episode, I catch up with three of the five partners of one of Australia's most celebrated architectural practices, John Wardle Architects. John Wardle, Megan Dwyer, and James Loader join us over Zoom from the studio in Melbourne to talk about their journeys, how they design buildings that are kind to people, and the necessary role an architect plays in improving a city. Today, we're, we're obviously really excited about um, talking with John Wardle Architects. And we have three partners today, which is um, Megan Dwyer, James Loader, and founder John Wardle. Uh, welcome, James and Megan and John. Thank you Thank very you. much. And congratulations, John, on your Australian Institute Award Architects Gold Medal uh, 2020, which was recently announced. Yeah, well, um, that was uh, a gold medal received at an interesting time. It sort of spanned the duration of hopefully the worst of COVID. And it sort of defined my period as gold medalist, um, an extraordinary period of time for our practice. And then it spanned into this year because I was an assistant. The one great reward of winning, or the greatest reward of, of winning this medal is to tour around Australia and give a series of, of uh, addresses in each capital city, I think nine in all. Uh, and I was insistent that I, I have that pleasure and, and so have, and I've just only just completed my lap of Australia done in two parts. I've missed COVID by minutes in two different states <laughs> of Australia, literally. Um, that was lucky. And ended up with a fine, very small audience in Darwin as my final talk after giving two different talks here in, in Melbourne in two different venues to um, friends and colleagues and the rest of the world, it was just a, a wonderful time. Uh, so that was a, a real privilege. Yeah, it's, it's perfect. It is perfect timing kind of post-COVID, uh, as you say. Uh, we're very we're incredibly lucky here in Australia that we are uh, able to, you know, move around the country, um, unlike other countries that are still suffering hugely. It, it does feel strange, doesn't it? I, I flew to Melbourne last weekend and I felt very... Uh, not uncomfortable, but it just kind of felt like this felt really odd to me. Having spent a lifetime flying all over the world for very quick meetings, you know, New York for a day, you know, Milan for a day, things like that. Ridiculous things that we used to do. Um, just flying to Melbourne now feels like a slightly, a slightly odd thing. But I, I don't know how you felt after so many flights around Australia. Did, did it just feel natural again to you? No, not at all. I mean, I think we, obviously in Victoria, we had, we had the most severe um, effects with our 29 weeks of lockdown. Our staff in two states worked from home for that 
period of time uh, and it's changed us uh, forever. We, I think probably more so than uh, people and organisations in other states of Australia. Um, mm. it's, there are a lot of great lessons learned and a lot of things that we now more deeply consider as part of our processes and our responsibilities as architects. As a result of that, it was a time of real reckoning about how we operate, yeah. the, 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 uh, the importance of what we do. Um, we did some interesting things. One thing we did by default, we, with that lockdown, it, we were allowed out for one hour a day and could go no further than five kilometres from your family home. So we started a thing on our get-togethers as a practice called Local Loops, where we asked each person to practice over that whole period of time to um, provide a map and then photos and then talk about what, what they can do in that oh, range. And what we effectively did was map a large proportion of Melbourne and some various pockets of Sydney if you've got a much smaller students. Mm. Um, and we became sort of urban geographers for a while and then it, it did highlight the disparity of, of existence within the city, the, the, the um, the proximity to green spaces, to cultural institutions, schools, other things within that place that we live. And um, so by default, it became a fascinating experiment that spanned that course of time. Isn't that amazing? I, I think it did force everybody. I mean, Melbourne had it worse than the rest of the country, but it did force everyone to slow down and you know, focus on the local, their local environment, local community, their home, their family. I mean, probably drove some people crazy, but other people were excited by that new discovery that was right in front of their very nose. I like I like the fact that you talk about uh, you know a large collaborative environment, but with the creative energy of a small studio. I love that positioning because you aren't you aren't a small studio anymore. You're quite big, and let's let's just let's just talk about that too because you know I made the dumb move of putting my name on the door. I'm not saying you did. But you know, when you're starting out as a young design architect or a designer, starting out in business, you just everybody kind of did that at the time. And then later down the track, 10, 20, 30 years later, you go, well, hang on. It's not just me anymore. People think it's just me and I need to fix that. And I'm surrounded personally. I'm surrounded by incredible, my incredible team who I love and they do incredible work and they've grown with me over time. And probably, probably not too dissimilar to... Um, your company is how, how do you grow? You've got five, five partners. Is that right? Five directors. That's correct. Yeah. 14 shareholders. Um, I mean, that's pretty significant. And um, I guess today what we're going to do, we're going to talk a bit about you, John, and how you started and everything, but we definitely want to talk to Megan and James around, um, you know, I know there's other directors as well, but around uh, growing up in this organization, you know, uh, uh, with your vision, but, but growing and, and, and kind of, I guess, um, becoming leaders in their own right within uh, your organization. I think it'd be really cool to unpack that as well. Because a lot, of, a, a lot of people listening in will have that similar kind of, I guess, issue or uh, how some people have navigated it well and others not so well. And we can all learn as we go in business and in life to improve things, you know, incrementally over time or strategically uh, over time as well. So how did you start out, John? Yeah, well, I thought it was a complete deceit and exaggeration calling myself John Wardle Architects, putting the S on the end. I, that was, <laughs> it was you John fraud. Yeah. I, I often joke I come from generations of public servants on both sides of the family, and, and, uh, and I, 
I don't I initially felt I didn't have the DNA to do it now I and we have managed to do. So ours was a very slow pro process of, of growth. The, those early years were really uh, defined by my parents asking, telling me, pleading with me to go and ask for my job back, which wasn't <laughs> helpful for the first 10 years. But we were slow to start, no doubt about it. And um, But then sort of, I think, sort of sets something in train about appreciating the importance of of, of looking to the left and right of the straight direction of architecture, our, the, the, the sort of the challenges we've undertaken, the things that have fascinated me personally and draw, drawn into the practice of the things, we're slightly beyond just straight architectural practice. So we've had these fascinations with the world beyond uh, you know, a lot of aspects of, of craft and making uh, that probably more directly relate to architecture, but certainly... Um, art practice, uh, parallels in art practice that have fueled a lot of our um, appreciation of creative processes really from day one. So it's always been a practice that's resisted becoming conventional or corporate whilst growing at the same time, um, not through any great strategic plan. We, we've, the last few years have been times, and perhaps James should talk more about this, really spending a lot of time devoted to the the, the processes of practice, whereas we're left to my own devices, we've never had a moment's pre, uh, planning ahead. We've just head down and run hard for 30-odd years and taken our opportunities where they've occurred to us. We've won a competition in Sydney, so we did a competition in, a project in Sydney. We've yeah. moved geographically because of the opportunity and we've cross-typed yeah. projects again. Always that fascination for doing something the first time, and that was always as a young first generation practice yeah. and it's still which is why probably the one of the most defining characteristics is the breadth of our reach from doing small coastal houses for a family to major city buildings or large uh, university or research buildings and that breadth comes from that constant yearning for doing something for the first time i i, I totally relate to that and i, I started out as frost design in london trying to present myself as a company. I knew I could do the work of a bigger firm that I'd worked with previously, but people, people, I, and people saw me as an individual, not as a business. And that's, it's interesting that early days, isn't it? Kind of navigating that, you know, adding that S or not <laughs> to it, uh, being seen as a company or an individual. That's a choice that people can, people make, but obviously you made the, made the choice deliberately of creating a, um, a firm where others can thrive, which is what you've clearly done. And that diversity, I love. I'm just, I feel the same way. It's like, I love being a generalist in terms of design. I, I don't want to be pigeon, pigeonholed into one specific area. I like the world of design. I like the world of opportunities and society and how we might make things better along the way. You called yourself a, a design architect. And that's kind of, I haven't heard that a huge amount. And why? Why design architect? I think that's actually labelled as, I think part of that citation of the gold medal is, is, is that came into it. No, I'm, I've actually never been particularly enamoured of titles. Um, <laughs> I, uh, and it's one of our things with growth where, where people seem to want to try and buy a title. Um, yeah. They phase me. In fact, one of the not ever coming from a, a corporate or big company background, when we have to liaise with other organisations, I'm always flabbergasted by how titles express hierarchy and, and find it very difficult to yeah. navigate. Yeah. So, no, I, I think as a 
practice, we are very much sort of strongly defined design focus in everything we, we do. If we do a strategic study or a master plan, we're still imagining built form and we're, we're creating sort of a, a vision of something that's spatial, that's strongly three-dimensional, even when we're considering um, an opportunity in, in, um, in a strategic study or a piece of research. So we're still architects through and through and, and draw that powerful belief in the, in the necessary role of an architect to enhance a city to do well. We, we feel the pressure of the duration of time that a building sits on, on a piece of land and, and, and think that's sort of causal in the way we've uh, constructed so much of our engagement. Um, we, we always look beyond the, the site, we look into the histories, we take on that aspect of responsibility for building mm -hmm. powerfully. So, and I think that's for us what, what defines a design architect or a design practice. Mm. Yeah, no, it's, it's interesting. A lot of a lot of architecture firms don't have the word design in it. And I I'm I like I love the fact that you are doing that. Um it's it, for me it kind of feels more uh, broader than just not just architecture because architecture is not just architecture but the design as we very much what we do design is so powerful and has so much potential to realize positive change yeah. um and all the nuances in between architecture place brand experiences etc is what design is the planning of those experiences have you always been have a strong sense of place i mean you're, you're all melbourne based i think you all started in melbourne too right all, all three of you yeah, yeah. Again, we. I, I think we look for something that's authentic to place. I mean, I think we, as a constant traveller, I'm not interested in going to somewhere where the retailer exper experiences the same for any mm. anywhere else in the world. If I, you know, you want to go to Florence to see something that is only in that great city, or to experience. You sort of define places by the, by the kinds of experiences we, we know they contain that are theirs alone. So I think we try and draw that into what we do. That's why I think we're also a strongly research-based practice and fascinated with history always. I don't think we've ever done a project with looking at what the recall of the site is or the recall of, of mm. um, the sort of layers of memory in an organisation or a structure of a family or all these sorts of things that define the specifics of, of us building a particular place. So that it is that authentic experience that goes into the craft and nature of making to find things that may have caused settlement to occur or people to congregate in one place historically has been about those defining characteristics um, and often the, the cultural aspects of making that are drawn into a, a region or a place. And we'll always chart a course towards the things that are most specific and most defining about the places that we build. You've been fortunate enough, I guess, in hindsight, to be living and growing your practice at a time where Melbourne was in through going through some serious transformation, um, serious embracement of design, unlike the rest of the country at the time, it was well ahead of the game. What, what did that feel like? Well, I, I think like all things, it goes through stages. We see go right back to the 1880s and see the boom times of marvellous Melbourne. And very often... I weren't suggesting you were around then, John. Sorry. I wasn't. <laughs> no, and, and no, nobody was. But 
it is interesting that the, the cycles of change and, and, and sometimes when we look around, we, we realise that those cycles have produced um, a good outcomes at, 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 at disparate times. At the, the, often the boom cycles have produced great things, but also some catastrophic changes to the city. I would say we, as a practice, critical of the boom of some of the multi-res that's occurred mm. in parts of our city over the last 10 or so years, a very recent period of time, and would look yeah. really critically at that as not contributing to yeah. Melbourne being fantastic. And that has been a boom, whereas you know, in preceding booms, great things have been done to public infrastructure. We've created in those early booms of Melbourne, the, the parks and the, the, yeah. the social infrastructure that has, has, um, has defined our city. And, and we now look at, 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 at a massive boom of a particular type multi-residential development that hasn't then contributed to the social infrastructure that should have been there to support this rapid change in population that's redefined an area. So, um, mm. yeah, I, I think it's, I, I think we as architects must look critically. There's been yeah. great times of, of building sometimes that we would be critical of. I think when you look around cities, you can always find that often um, the health and well-being of the creative culture, certainly of, of the architectural profession, is is often linked to the evidence of the emergence of small small architectural practices. Does a city support that creative culture um, that allows practices to commence and grow like ours did? Um, and very often, there's a link between universities and the emergence of small practices. And yes. you can cities that do that extraordinarily well and Melbourne has done for a long period of time done that extraordinarily well it was our start of growth was through commissions from RMIT uh, that we then took to University of South Australia and back here to Melbourne University more recently Monash, Monash Melbourne University and then Monash and then back to Melbourne University more recently so our growth path as a practice has been supported by universities from much of our life I look at other cities and think you, I'm not aware of that strong link between the supporting culture of young practices, either state or state governments or local governments or universities, these other organisations that can that can be supportive at various times just aren't providing what we've benefited from as a practice here in Melbourne. Yeah, I, I'm just talking to, well, interesting you say that, because I mean, I, I definitely see uh, Melbourne as a, a design city um, and and design. There was a, obviously a boom. I started going there back in um, I think it was ninety four. Um, it was a different city to London. It was a different city to Sydney, and I was excited by the creativity in that city. And and things have changed over time. And I feel like uh, we had a same time in Sydney. We had a boom, but it wasn't a design boom. It was a doing boom. And I felt like now we're we're entering the design era where a lot of practices I spoke to, like William Smart, for example, uh, or Neil Durback Block, um, who you've worked with previously, yeah. um, you know, they're coming coming of age. It's kind of they've been through that that kind of struggling to convince uh, clients how important design is or their particular kind of characteristic and approach. And now the clients are actually getting it. Now the clients are actually commissioning them for that. And you see how the practices have grown over time. If you look back in hindsight from your how you sit today, I don't know how many people you've got in your firm. How many people you got in your firm? 
Oh, we're up around 110 at the moment. So it's a lot of people. I mean, looking back, you never would have imagined starting off as one that it ended up being yeah. this kind of kind of yeah. scale. And and all the other firms I've been talking to are still busy working on projects and they haven't actually had to look back to where they've started out. They're kind of just busy doing the now and haven't actually seen how the city has changed because of their absolute determination and focus on doing good things. I find that so exciting. It's so exciting to see, to be in a city, in a country where positive changes like that. I know it can be frustrating at times, but when you look around, there's a lot of rubbish as well, but there's a lot of amazing things that are coming through and a lot of amazing small practices as well as larger practices that have grown over time through, I guess, opportunities, through um, the need of someone to do the work. And thankfully, there's people like you guys there who have uh, incredible eye and passion and um, rigor uh, and, and talent to, to actually take every opportunity you've got and actually making it formidable. And, and I thank you for that personally. <laughs> and I'm sure the country will thank you for that. Megan, how long have you been working with, together uh, in, the, in the practice? Mm, do you know, I've just clocked over 20 years this year. Wow, um, congratulations. Really? What, just this just, just yeah. right today or what? Oh, no, no, no. I think um, <laughs> it's oh, weeks ago. But yeah. Yeah, it, it has been a really long period of time. And did I think when I joined that I would be here still in 20 years? Mm, I don't think I thought much beyond a couple of years at that age, at that young age. Did you um, tell John that at the time or not? Yeah, two years. That's it. <laughs> no, not at all. enough. Yeah. I think that there is often a mindset amongst young architects that, you know, you, you spend a couple of years in a practice and learn all there is to learn and then take that and, and move elsewhere. So I think that was the sort of um, possibly still is the mentality of a young architect. Yeah. Um, but What's I just found... doing that? Yeah. I, look, I just found... I, I joined... Um, just um, not long after John had secured some of the, the um, larger scale um, commissions that set us off on a growth trajectory. And, uh, you know, I've long had a fascination with um, public uh, and institutional mm. work. And so it seemed like it was a very good practice to join. I was felt very strongly aligned with the, the values of the work and the values of the practice. And so as these new opportunities unfolded, as we grew, there was sort of, you know, one incredible um, project to work on after the other. Uh, and there was certainly no um, shortage of, um, you know, opportunity to grow personally. Uh, and so uh, I find myself still here. Oh, wow. That's incredible. Yeah. And uh, do you feel like you've, I mean, what, what size was the firm 20 years ago? Um, it, it was seven. Um, you, oh, you were one of the S's in... Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I like that. Wow. How does that feel to look back after, like, just being seven to being 107? Quite extraordinary, really. I mean, it's we, we've had to sort of navigate a lot of change in the way that the business is organised and the way that we um, we do things. And I think we've we've there's a a certain looseness to the way that we've we've done that. We've sort of not um, organised it to death. We've sort of um, just put enough of a framework around it to allow it to still be the, the kind of exploratory um, uh, practice that it, it was um, mm. when I first joined. And, mm. and I think that's been a, a significant part of the success that we've had. So you're one of the leading experts in the public spaces and uh, education sector. I mean, how did that come about? Was that just through experience working in that, this practice? 
Well, do you know, at um, university, I was I just discovered this really deep fascination for cities and for, for public work. Uh, and so that, that was something that I, I when I left university, I, I really did want to sort of work in that area. Um, in my uh, previous job, I had uh, the opportunity to work on quite a lot of projects um, of that kind. So I guess when I, I joined um, uh, all those years ago, I sort of brought with me a little bit of experience and insight around um, those kinds of projects. And, and as it turned out, um, that became a, a sort of significant part of our, our growth. Um, so I would say that I brought a little bit of knowledge, certainly a lot of curiosity with me. And it's really over the course of growing from seven to 107, that myself, but also um, others in the practice have kind of developed these expertise around those project types. Yeah. Um, and it is that curiosity that really allows us to, to keep expanding our sort of knowledge and thinking about, about those kinds of spaces. That's really interesting. I was wondering if John, what did you see that in Megan at the time? Did you think she's gonna be a partner one day? We're gonna be having a chat in your time. Look, I, it's, it's funny. I, I, that whole idea of prediction, I mean, we've never predicted much. In fact, I often think prediction gets in the way of yeah. things. Um, and so the scale of the pro practice, the kind of where it was going or how it would operate in the future has never been anything I've given a moment's notice for. And as, as keen as I was to employ Meg at the time, it was just that sort of um, the immediacy of um, she seemed the right young thing and, and wanted us to join us. And it was probably with no more forethought than that, but it has allowed me to see the real evidence that a, a good practice with a, a structure that seems to be well-founded, and I, I think we have had that, has given the opportunity for people to really develop in the way they have and willing to just take part, as Meg has shown from a relatively early period of time, to really take part and um, share the focus we have on the, the practice itself beyond the projects and I think that's probably one of the things that defining characters that Meg had you know relatively early yeah I mean it's it's that's that's nice to hear and it's funny because I've got people that I've worked with now for 18 years 19 years and you kind of look around and go oh my god we worked together for all this time it's quite mm -hmm. incredible and actually what I've what I found is it gives me the greatest pride is not just what we're doing of course the work is great and the opportunities but seeing my team evolve and grow and become leaders in their own right. Oh my God, that's good. Because I remember how hard it was in the beginning when I had to do everything, <laughs> you know? Oh yeah, I was in fear of that. Well, I, I had it from a very early age, this thing was just coming to our language about appreciating the skills of others. And, and for me, it was a necessity. I was just, was a super aware of all of the areas that I couldn't do. I only worked for one uh, fantastic residential practice, Cox and Carmichael, no commercial experience, whatsoever, no big practice experience. Mm. Um, and for all the lessons to be learned there, none of them were about how to run an architectural practice. And yeah. so we, this necessary introduction of others into the practice has been part of a, 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 a sort of a, a, based on the appreciation of all those things I can't do. That's why there's so many people with varying skills here um, and yeah. uh, that, have, that have been so part of the construct of this vast matrix of a practice that can do such a broad amount of, of uh, project type. We yeah. have people here that that means that I've never had to work out how you put a lift core together or, a, you know, whatever. 
is because I just totally have a, a real trust and comfort in these range of skills others have brought to the practice from elsewhere. Yeah, it's really cool to see that that contribution. And I mean, with any business like ours, it's like maintaining the quality is paramount, isn't it? Like the culture, the quality of the work, yeah. making sure it doesn't slip or kind of get, um, as you grow, doesn't kind of break in the process of growing. And, and you realize that the, the first person you hire, you're a business. You go from the, you add the S with two people, you know, it becomes... Uh, equally as, as exciting as it is, it also can be hard to start to get delegate, start to grow beyond yourself and create a culture and a business and people who buy into it or part of it and actually contribute and take it to another level. So, James, it kind of leads us to, um, you know, you were, you were one of the most recent additions as a director in the business. How did that come about? Um, well, similar to Megan, my first introduction to the practice was also around almost 20 years ago when I... I did my year 10 work experience at high school um, at this very practice working with John Wardle Architects. And I did my two weeks of mostly, you know, photocopying drawings for people and many of staff telling me not to perhaps pursue a career in architecture. It's too long and hard. And Jeez, but I, I remember I just loved the kind of the, the large scale of, of a, a creative place that makes up an architecture practice. Was, was Megan trying to get rid of you then? Oh. <laughs> no, no, absolutely not. <laughs> She's looking a bit nervous. Well, so that didn't put you off. That's good. Why, why didn't, didn't that put you off? I think because I, I liked the idea of working in a larger creative environment. I, I'd, I'd studied graphics, fine art and multimedia at school. Oh, cool. um, and I was just taken by the idea of, of kind of working in a larger setting, um, you know, in a kind of bigger collaborative environment and uh, I, I took the to study the right subjects and in second year university I secured a part-time role while studying and I haven't left since that's been 13 years of worthy employment yeah well tell a true um, story of your engagement <laughs> yeah go on of how I resecured my yeah. position there there were some tough times after the the GFC that was around 2008 and John had uh, timely lost his driver's license at the time. Oh. And John had come up with an idea to, to re-secure my position in the, in the firm by <laughs> allowing me to drive him to and from work, which How was kind of, of him. Which, which was part of a broader idea of this, this a one hour at the beginning and end of a day of mentorship. Oh, mentorship. Yeah. yeah. And that was that was listening to Frank Helley on ABC Radio, the various political. <laughs> so John wasn't on the phone the whole journey. No, 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 no. <laughs> dedicated. Okay, so it's genuine, genuine mentorship. Yeah, I was thankful that John didn't lose his license again since I think. <laughs> That's a good way into the business, but it's a both it's a beneficial on both sides, right? Well, yes, yeah, right. On day three, as we approached the corner of Pun Road here and the lights were going, Amber, I said, gun it, Jimmy, gun it. He went right through a red light and, and uh, took the three points. And I said, let that be a lesson to you. You're in charge of the motor vehicle. Yeah. You can't be distracted by others. And a lesson. Oh, that's good. John, would you drive James around it when he loses his license next? <laughs> I don't think he want me. No, they don't actually like me driving any of them here. <laughs> uh, 
that is so funny. But it's um, I mean, James, you're seriously passionate about technology and the role it can play in the design process. I mean, are you naturally inquisitive person? Is that is that what you studied? You studied 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 uh, design, I guess, brand uh, graphics and animation, etc. Yeah, I think I think certainly from an early age, I, I loved inventions and machines and understanding how they worked. Um, apparently, I could operate a VCR when I was one and a half years old, and I used to pull them apart and understand how they worked. And well, that's I think being yeah, it was. I just loved the kind of, even old inventions. I just loved understanding how they worked. And I think being part of that first generation to use computers at school, yeah. I was afforded that constant fascination with, you know, what's the latest tool and device that um, you could use to explore a kind of creative outlet. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I studied fine art at school and I could say I was a reasonably accomplished um, oil painter, but um, that, that kind of boundless creative output that the digital technologies provided, I was, it was just a far greater seduction. And look, even to this day, I'm, I'm exploring through our design team here, what are those latest tools that, you know, allow us to create, collaborate and even experience um, our work in. And I think that there's certainly enormous shifts coming with the use of, you know, virtual and augmented realities um, and the prospect of designing an entire building inside a, a VR space. Mm -hmm. um, I think. That, that will really shift the way we think about our design process and how we engage with our clients, which is I think, really exciting. What, what technology do you, new technology do you use today that um, enhances those experiences? Uh, we are exploring the different um, brands at the moment of VR and augmented reality headsets. So there's, the, mm -hmm. um, there's quite a number on the market and they are, they, they're getting more immersive with the way they're, um, they're developing their technologies. But I think for us, it's, it's finding ways to both use them as a, a design tool for ourselves internally, but also how we then um, look to, you know, engage with and immerse clients in the various stages of their projects. Yeah, I mean, we find that, we find that too. We use VR in a lot of our uh, property place uh, projects and uh, signage and wayfinding. It's just like, sometimes it's kind of yeah. old, still old school. Sometimes it's actually using new technology. It's kind of, Interesting time. We kind of you're often bridging the gap between the two. I could probably add to it because that's really one of the things that's defined defined James's position in the practice. Stephen Mee, who's also been listener for twenty five years, and he and I are very much drawers and have and, and continue to be. Mm. Um, and even though Stephen's well ahead of me with computer literacy. And as part of this broadening of the creative coalition of the practice, James, by really, by his, by his own skills and ability, but also introducing these broader range of technologies has been probably the thing that's broadened the, the design group within the practice and the way that we um, share design knowledge and design conversations and decentralise them in a larger practice. So it's been really... Um, emphatic this use of technology that has actually allowed us to um, become probably a more equitable design studio with more people becoming involved in that and that recognition of, of the creative co coalition that now exists with um, with COVID and with lockdown everybody working from home James introduced us and educated us all about the Miro technology yeah. that we use 
for every project. So there we were working in isolation, but on a, on a digital whiteboard that recorded uh, remarkably um, the, the evidence of so many participants. And particularly, we'd already commenced that when we moved to Sydney uh, two years ago. Our Sydney studio and Melbourne studios communicate by these means. And again, Jimmy just set up much of that technological framework that's allowed us to progress in this manner. Isn't it incredible how we were also forced to embrace that with, with COVID? How, like, this conversation on Zoom um, a year and a half ago would have been an odd thing. It would, it, I mean, maybe architects were already doing it with Skype and you have Cisco and other, other platforms that you're working with, but the broader kind of creative practices were very much face-to-face -face human interactions, post-it notes, drawing meetings, et cetera. It's, it's been... Um, it's really helped the, well, I mean, it's, I guess people see good and bad in both of that, but I, 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 I mean, I'm, a lot of stuff that we were arming and are around, arming about technology, embracing it. We were like questioning it and we kept putting it off and, you know, now we're all in the cloud. Now we're all um, remote. It's actually been, it's quite liberating in, in a strange way. We're very much focused. Sorry, sorry, Megan. I was just going to say, it's just like we've sort of broadened our toolkit and, you know, we, we will still from time to time do the face-to-face -face design review or what have you, where mm. we are drawing on um, hard copy prints and things. But, it, but we've we've just added to the um, toolbox this remarkable array of digital tools. And, and just far more nimble for it in the way we respond to circumstances of yeah. location, geography. We're, we're able to work across just all the different platforms in different places and it's it's COVID has allowed us to really explore the way we work you know yeah i i find that there are more focused conversations too i, I find that often even in the physical i love getting together with a team and clients in this in the physical space but you know someone could be physically in the same space but not really f mentally there or <laughs> you know they're uh, using technology to escape that physical uh, meeting that they're in um, and and I and that's interesting. I, I find the meetings we have today are far more uh, deeper, and uh, I guess in a way more equally shared as well in terms of the conversation. Yeah. I think it's yeah. deliberate. There's different etiquette. Mm. Um, probably going off subject, but um, I, I, I do think there was something on your website which talks about uh, future um, thinking design. I think that's what it was saying. It was said, um, and I think that the or was it future design thinking? I'm not sure, but. Um, I think, you know, what is the future? What do you think the future is for architecture and um, going forward? Such a great question. And, you know, there's a lot of different views and a lot of writing about that out there at the moment. I mean, one thing that we're seeing, which kind of relates to that piece of writing that you mentioned, is that um, clients are often coming to us sort of earlier in the process and they mm -hmm. come to us with many big questions rather than a tidy brief and mm. a straight line um, to, to design a, a building in. Mm -hmm. And so I think that, that little piece of writing was really sort of talking about the, um, the benefit that we can bring um, to a, a client or a project in really sort of trying to, to unlock it or define it or um, really sort of pin down the starting point. Uh, and I, I do think into the future, we're gonna see um, more work in that strategic uh, sort of pre-design area. Uh, and that's something that we, we actually really, um, we do do a bit of that already. And we sort of really, we find it quite sort of invigorating and um, challenging. And it, it's, a, 
it's a real um, area that I think we hope to sort of expand our, our um, work into. That's, that's, uh, that's interesting. I mean, I think it's, 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 I guess kind of some people are scared by this change and other people are embracing it. And, uh, mm. you know, in a way we kind of, we all don't know the answers. Like people keep asking me, what's the future? I don't yeah. know. Um, but you can see, you start to see patterns, you start to see movements yeah. towards. And um, I think it's a time where we all, I guess we're all working on discovering what, what's the future and, and making that happen uh, in the best yeah. way we possibly can. Yeah. It's interesting. We're sitting in um, Chippendale, um, just next to this ridiculously looking building, the Phoenix Gallery, <laughs> <laughs> next to Indigo Slam, and going, oh my God, that was a, that's a game changer for, for Sydney, uh, well, Chippendale firstly, <laughs> which was, a, you know, full of small cottages mostly, um, right behind Central Park, which we actually helped kind of brand and do the marketing from, for, with Fraser's like a long time ago now. But, um, you know, the Phoenix Gallery, is phenomenal. I mean, I, and I, I look at that, I look at your whole hus, uh, hospitality or law courts or your, that, um, you know, the wonderful homes that you're, you're creating, that, that diversity is just like, oh my God, what an incredible portfolio for a start. Um, but but they, all, they all look so different. They all are quite unique. I mean, how does that, how does that happen in, in your practice? Well, I think it's been there from the start. It's, it's something we talk about a lot because it's, it's, it's hard to us to feel that we're, there's a brand association with our work because I think some people find there's elements that are recognisable, but generally our work is not. It's, you know, there are many very fine firms of architects that you can pick immediately the, the hand that's at work there. And that does allow them to establish an understanding and an ease of understanding in the brand of their work. We don't have that at all. And I, it's, it's one of our great strengths, but it, it sort of um, in the way we project to the world, it's often uh, an area that is, a, is concerning to us, mm -hmm. but it does come out of a very strong desire to be curious, to do something for the first time, whether it be a project type or use of a material or technology and where we're always, there's sort of a level of enthusiasm, I think, that is evident in these buildings for research and, and, and development of ideas to be variant from what we've done before. And we'll use the excuse of the variance found in the site or the instructive nature of a discussion with a client or some bit of lost history from that part of the city mm. to actually find those things that are so specific to that project that they're they then become less expressive for what we are as a practice, and I think it's, I think it's a good thing, but it does, it, it does come be problematic if you look at the complexity of those law courts you've just mentioned. Yeah. Go. Uh, that's the first law courts we've ever designed. Yeah. I mean, you probably should talk to that, but then and look at that as being done uh, just as we're finishing Phoenix, which I was working to, so closely on with, um, with Dirtback Block Jaggers. Um, yeah. And the variance between those two projects is virtually unrecognisable. Um, yet it was for the same practice. And I, I think yeah. this is one of those things that we contend with as we, as we grow. But, you know, I personally, I, I would be, think it was a pretty dull existence if we were one of these firms that just does multi-threads. And that's yeah. pretty much all they do. I, um, I would find that's a very limiting experience 
as an architect to, to have this variance is really the core of what we do. I think it also comes out of quite a, a diversity of, of personalities and interests in what is now a much broader design team that, that do work across so many of these projects. So I think we're benefiting that, that sense that each of these buildings does have that expression of that diversity of so expression in each one of them. I think also afforded by the fact that there's, there's so many different types. We do approach them, um, each project type, with that sense of, John said, curiosity and exploring something new, yeah. real systems. I would say there's a few things that sort of tie them all, all together. And, uh, you know, there's the internal creative process, which is um, it does have some consistency across all mm. of the projects. There's our kind of commitment to place and responding to um, mm. context. But then I also think there's a, and we've talked about this a little bit before, there's this kind of um, almost empathy for the occupants of the building and we, that we, we do create buildings that, um, as one uh, person has said recently, that are kind to people. And I think if you put those, you, you can kind of recognise those three threads in, in every project, I would say. Yeah. I love that. A very fine Vice-Chancellor we're working for, Rufus Black, Vice-Chancellor of the University of Tasmania, in describing our works, talks about our concern with placefulness. Yes, it's a really lovely word. word. Nice word. Um, Jeez, you guys are copywriters here. What's going on? Uh, <laughs> I've got to give, I've got to give him credit for that one. He's uh, yeah. we've, a trademark. Yeah. <laughs> there is something that comes out of, I mean, we often actually enjoy, because of that, because our buildings are less singular, we often look at the descriptors that other people apply for to them, mm. which I think is really interesting. We're very curious to hear about how other people um, describe the experience of our buildings, and we we'll often take on those stories of their description that becomes the way that then we would project, um, you know, the, the success of a project, um, because it is a fascination to us because we are sort of less certain about the absolute nature of 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 the type of what we do. And so we like that sort of uncertainty to tease out less common descriptions of, of, of architectural identity. Mm -hmm. I was just wondering, because um, the word place is really gaining momentum. I mean, everyone's talking about place now, whereas it felt to me like, I don't know, 20 years ago is architect, is a conversation architects were having. Um, what, 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 has it always been kind of a, the focus? I mean, the term place itself, I know I'm getting kind of granular, but I'm kind of curious and wonder, wondering what started that? Well, I, I, I think sort of architectural training um, has, it, it has changed uh, now, but it once did focus on sort of understanding the site as um, the starting point for mm. a, a design exercise and that, and that, that, I think ever since I've been in the practice, understanding the site has actually had a much broader meaning and it's included um, history and current kind of, uh, sort of this idea of almost collective memory that, that, and I think that's the difference between a site and a place, that there's this, yeah. there, there's this kind of la these layers of meaning. And I think that's, that's something that we've always done. We've, we've not stopped at the measurable characteristics of a site we've always looked beyond that and explored the stories or the histories or the narratives that, mm. that define a place i know that when we because we have a place team uh that um is incredible that cat burgess is the head of that team and we help a lot of architects a lot of uh, developers cities around kind of 
unpacking the place and often often and given the kind of strategic kind of meaning and purpose and uh, all the tools to kind of express that uh, whether it's physically or through marketing or through naming or through signs and wayfinding for example it's just I just kind of find it yeah I do I do find it interesting how this becomes such a, a such a focus in terms of place visioning placefulness as you say um, and it's really becoming I guess becoming I guess a term that people now understand and understand the importance of it and, and how what that means and the importance of doing the right thing creating a place where people interact as you say like the kind to people but also helping people to have a better life or, or a better a better workspace or a better experience in a law court or a hospital or education mm-hmm. it's like we're all trying to design it make it better than what it was you know it's like using our new technology our new experiences our combined collective power to design an even better experience because the previous ones didn't quite make it, you know, um, yeah. and they're flawed. Um, I've, I find it so exciting and, and kind of curiosity, optimism, excitement around the new and, and every brief is an opportunity to do it even better. Do you guys, I guess you guys are living, breathing that as well, right? That's really important to me. And I see that's where there's you know a lot of opportunity kind of lies and in, in, um, it, it gives us something to respond, really meaningful to respond to. And I often sort of reflect on, um, on the fact that, you know, possibly even as long as 20 years ago, universities really, they, they sort of did see technology beginning to influence the way they did things. And they really had to think very carefully about, you know, what would the university campus be um, with technology overlaid in, in the traditional kind of experience of university. And they've, they've been at really at the forefront of this idea that they have to think really carefully about the physical place in order to continue um, to, pr- to provide a kind of optimum experience of it. Mm. And I think that, um, that with the, the court building, but also the, the hospital that we're doing at the moment, um, there's, a, there's now this broader appreciation that buildings need to be kind to people. Um, whereas, you know, the, traditionally the court has been a place of authority and mm. the hospital has sort of been a place of infection control. Yeah. And both the, the mindsets around both those building types have, have really changed significantly in the last sort of three to five years. It really has. I think that we, you mentioned senses before, but it's like, how do, how do, um, how do we design to the senses? How do we kind of make a, mm-hmm. you know, we've done about eight hospitals, I think, our, our urbanite teams in terms of science and wayfinding across uh, these new hospitals, um, mostly in New South Wales. Um, but how do we how do we enhance the experience through all types of situations when someone's grieving, when mm. someone's in an incredible rush to get to emergency, when it's a small child is vulnerable or whatever? Like it's it's really interesting to see it as not just getting the job done, but how do we design well-being? How do we design mm. happiness? How do we design calm, mm. uh, etc.? So I think that like our clients today are getting that more now too. They're kind of it's kind of cool. When we talk about place before, where I was getting to with that kind of ramble that I mentioned was um, in the past. Quite often we'd get a situation where um, you know a developer or someone come to us and say, "Look, this architectural firm has done this incredible building. Uh, this beautiful. It's an, it's going to be this, this, and this. And now can you help us create <laughs> what is it? You know what what is this?" Um, What's it for? What's its kind of strategic kind of positioning in its, you know, is it civic? Is it, you know, et cetera? How, how does it all kind of work in the place that it's at? Because it's funny, I think, I think that there was a time there where not everybody was actually working that out when they designed a building. They were just simply 
answer the brief for the kind of the square meterage requirement, et cetera. Do you see a shift that's happened over the last few years where people have got much more focused on why are we commissioning this building? Why is it important? What contribution is it going to make to society? Well, that's what you spoke to before. I think the future part of the service that architects provide will be that visioning before a building is designed and built. Yeah. I think it assists with clients really get that understanding of what is they're looking for. Because I think at the moment, yeah, to build it and then work it out, I, don't, I think is a little bit old-fashioned. So I think, yeah, is, exactly. I think as architects, we'll be doing much more at the front end before the traditional designing of a building. Mm. Yeah, there's a lot yeah. more sort of positioning, I guess, that a client needs to do today to, to know that they're, they're providing, you know, if it's a public building, a suitable experience or if it's a development, just that they are... Um, making a positive contribution. Yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting that, I don't know if you found this, but I found the last five years, in, in this last year, in fact, more so, where clients are coming to us who actually, they've changed, they want to do good, they want to contribute mm -hmm. in a positive way to whatever that they're doing, whether it's a, a drinks business, a restaurant, or a, a startup, or a VC business, or, or a, a property development, etc., and everything else they want to be doing something which is actually contributing in a positive way how do we do it in a sustainable way how do we do it more in what's our positive what's the right way that we should be doing this do you, have you found that too yes, you I mean, we, we've we've done projects where we've successfully urged clients beyond their original early ambition and that's something we feel very proud about that's again one of our histories but then also more recently on a, on a few projects we've had clients that have come with their own agenda um one particular one of the a pretty amazing environmental agenda, or two really. One, one residential project, one a massive university project. I just referred to the University of Tasmania that's just looked at new ways for assessing uh, the environmental impact of buildings. And for mm. us, to four buildings for that uh, is, a, is a series has been um, an extraordinary experience. But I, I see another side of your question, which is one of the difficulties we have because we're often sort of asked to explain or describe the inexplicable. And I think one of the great mm. pleasures of architecture is, is the things about it that are inexplicable or hard to define. Mm. Those things that really cause us to be moved by a place, uh, to behave in a certain way that encourage instinctive communal behaviour or intimacy and repose and all those sorts of things are broadly inexplicable or often there's a sort of a, you know, we often have to find where there's a shared language, where there's some commonality with these mm. experiences. What is particular place and what is a universal experience? And architecture always struggled or architects just struggle to um, describe so much of what they do. And I think we are in an era where there's this urging to describe things that are, um, or to justify or create a narrative for things that are beautifully inexplicable. <laughs> They're just... And it's great to not have them overtly, um, you know, the, the cognitive processes are, are more instinctive and we often spoil the moment. It's like taking a photo. You, you intrude on the moment when you take a photo. Often to describe or highly define something kind of can spoil that characteristic that makes it very personal, that reading of space, that expression, that, we, that, that, that urging that we all have to be, um, that, to be moved by a place um, is often best undescribed. It's a very personal, intimate reading of things. And I think we're at, there's a lot of pressure on us now to describe that narrative as, and, and make it universally appreciated. Mm. 
Yeah, that's that's really interesting. And obviously, the bigger the project, the more people's perspective you're going to get on that. It's great. It's amazing. We often think that's such a, a beautiful reading of a building. Yeah. Yeah, and, and kind of how does that compare to say Captain Kelly's cottage, which has got a lot of attention? You know, I want to live there. Compared to a, a larger scale project, because it, it, it does evoke a feeling. I mean, they all, everything you do, you, you as a team do evokes a feeling and a comfort and a, I guess experiences, a whole variety of experiences. I guess, is, is the Captain Kelly's cottage like a, um, a personal piece of design? Yes, it, it was. Um, but as a personal one that drew upon a lot of histories and a lot of people's recollection of a house that's 180 years old, you know in an amazing setting that really speaks to even its pre-colonial history. Um, and in that, there was a sort of a sense of responsibility for creating a very personal work that really collected the histories of so many people and on a landscape that is such a fraught place. And, you know, about Bruni Island in Tasmania, it's, its history has very uncomfortable storytelling. And there's so much embodied in our appreciation of that landscape and the values in those two small houses that is very personal, but with a sort of a broader responsibility of, of, um, yeah. of, of um, curatorial uh, aspects of, of, of ownership, I think. And for that reason, it's well, you can't live there. It is shared. It's, we, we, we share it with others. We, we, we've just come back. This, mm. These guys and a whole group of 13 of us have just come back from three days down there talking about our practice and thinking about the future and what we should learn and uh, all sorts of um, sort of really deep discussions about just about um, the, the future of our practice and you talk about place before to do that in a place that's so profound as that is to us mm-hmm. really focuses those conversations and two weeks before that we had uh, 19 uh, staff our younger staff but James here also um, leading uh, our broody, annual broody making where we have very clever other people from furniture makers to ceramicists uh, carpenters, blacksmiths, stonemasons, all these people where come and teach us their skills and wow. we build things along the coastal edge and that's an annual program uh, itself. So, yes, it's it's stuff is a very personal place. Only, uh, only you three came back? <laughs> yes, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> I'd still be there if I was them. Um, but but I, I think it also is, that, that sounds incredible. Um that experience that you guys are having there and that, you know, that using that place to change, help change your perspective on the practice, et cetera. Yeah, yeah, that distant, our, that, our important other place. It's the way, it's the way we can describe yeah, it. Yeah, that's really cool. But I think it's what, what we talk about when we look at your work broadly, it's a lot of it's obviously new. A lot of it's like large scale as well, um, civic projects, um, which are really, really important. And it's lovely to see a heritage project of that kind of that you know that importance that should be treated with the same I guess respect and not not knock it down and start again you know <laughs> let's do something concrete there um, um, but actually you know that that's so important for Australia I think as a whole too that that uh, embrace the heritage 
architecture, you know, the good stuff um, that's still existing and not flatten it. Um, and I guess, again, Melbourne has been very good at that in terms of their kind of, even with the homes, the extension on homes in, in Melbourne always amazed me at how, how wonderful the old and the new work together and the new being really, really new and beyond what you'd think would work together. And I, I love that, that for me, that fusion uh, works really, really well. I was gonna ask the question around, um, I mean, you kind of talked earlier, John, you, you kind of, your business has grown kind of organically and without a, a big plan originally. Um, it probably answers the question for me. Do you think you, have, you three have designed your life or has it just evolved? Definitely evolved. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. I said something in that speech as I went around Australia that there's um, a sort of an understanding of navigation that look, looking backwards can somehow, sometimes provide us. And sometimes we look back to realise how we've got to this position, mm. uh, which was a, a place we now find ourselves without any forethought. Mm -hmm. been our history. And I think along, as, as that pathway has kind of unfolded, we've certainly, you know, shaped around mm -hmm. it. Um, so there is this sort of concerted influence, I suppose, we've had on that. But it's not, certainly, it, it's by shaping the present rather than seeing the future, I suppose. Obviously, you have two other directors. What were their names? Stephen Mee and Matthew Van Coy. Okay, cool. And um, big shout out goes to them. Um, thank you so much for the time today. It's been a real pleasure and an honor to, to meet you and have this conversation and uh, keep up the incredible work that you're doing. Right. Thanks, Vince. It's great. All right. Good. Great. See you again. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening into this episode of Design Your Life from Lego to Skyscrapers with John Wardle, Megan Dwyer, and James Loader. Tune in next week. We'll be catching up with the formidable Yasmin Goshim founder of the Sydney-based YSG Studio. Thanks for listening to this episode of Design Your Life. If you'd like to find out more about how you can design your life, head to the website at designyourlife.com.au. If you found this episode inspiring, please don't forget to review and subscribe. If you have any ideas or like to get in touch, we would love to hear from you send us an email at hello at frostcollective.com.au.